The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to Halftime Report. I am Frank Collin, in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, where stocks are headed from here at the S&P 500. Let's look at a snap, a five-week win streak. Our investment committee is standing by to break the entire thing down. Joining us for the hour, Jason Snipe, Rob Seachin, and Jim Labenthal. But first, let's get a quick check on the markets right now. Take a look at the markets. Down day across the board. The Dow down about a half a percent. The S&P down even more than that. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down almost 1%. We're also seeing a very slight decline when it comes to Treasury yields. The 10-year at 3.74, down about five basis points as investors continue to digest that Fed speak. We're going to have much more on that coming up. But first, we've got a trade alert for you. We got our Jason Snipe trimming his position in NVIDIA and Palo Alto. Jason, explain this one to us. A lot of people are trying to ride that AI wave. You're actually jumping ship a bit. Yeah, Frank, and, and I think the bid is, is, is a very important piece uh, of the story, right? So we're, we're still have a lot of conviction on both of these names. Apollo Alto is up 76% year to date. You know, NVIDIA is up over 189% year to date. So this is a story is just prudent, re, you know, trying to manage our risk going forward. Obviously, you know, the, these we're, are, we're still you know, there's still very strong core positions for us. You know, we, we still very much believe in the stories as it relates to AI and cybersecurity and the, the ongoing tailwinds there. But for us, with, with names that have run this far, we thought it was appropriate to take a little bit off the table. So we did. And again, part of our quarterly rebalance story, okay. nothing changes for us in terms of the fundamental tailwinds here. So, Jason, nothing wrong with a little bit of profit taking, but I want to ask you, where do you see the risk? I'm looking at the notes this week. Goldman saying the Palo Alto is their t- really their top pick when it comes to cybersecurity, forecasting better than expected margin expansion in that space. And then Wells out with a note that NVIDIA it actually has an underappreciated part of its business, its Ethernet platform business. I know it's at a high multiple, but where do you see the risk when it comes to these names? So, uh, you know, clearly the, the S&P, you know, the, the multiple in the S&P is close to 19 times forward, right? So as I, as I looked towards the, the rest of this year, and again, you know, as, if I pick on Palo Alto as an example, you know, they, they've achieved profitability. You know, EPS growth is up, up above 85%. Revenue growth is above 25%. I really like the sticky business that they're doing with government contracts. But I just believe that when you see a stock run this much in the short run, again, we're only six months, you know, close to wrapping up the sixth month of the year above 70%. It's time to take some off the table. And that's, that's really what we would call sell discipline. Doesn't change our perspective on this stock or NVIDIA as an example with the fundamental tailwinds from AI and generative AI, the chips, the GPU chips. We believe in these stories, but we just felt right. that it was appropriate to take a little bit off the table, take some profits and look to elsewhere, other parts of the market where we might see some upside. You know, Jason, in all fairness, you are not the only one. You're actually kind of following the money. I know it's your idea, but you're following the money. Rob Seachin, 
biggest outflows from tech in the last 10 weeks. So a lot of people are thinking the way Jason's thinking. By the way, did I tell you, you your color coordination today is I was going to tell you the same excellent. thing. Excellent. You, who's your stylist? <laughs> David August. So um, let me say this. It's no surprise. We trimmed our Microsoft last Thursday on, on the show for similar reasons. Valuations are getting a little stretched. So let me put right. some meat on the bone there. Okay. Um, the tech sector is trading at 28 times forward earnings. This is back to the pre-pandemic peak. That's a big deal. People have to pay attention to that. It's a 45% premium to the market with a 10-year average of a 9% premium and a 35% peak premium at the end of 21. Last stat, for reference, during the tech bubble, 53% premium. So we're right there right. in terms of premium. So understand AI enthusiasm. Understand everything that's happening in this space. Don't understand the disconnect from real rates, frankly, because tech and interest rates have traded lockstep for a while. So in our mind, at what point does the market start paying attention to the Fed? The Fed's over there bound, pounding the drum. Pay attention. Rates are headed higher. That means real rates are likely headed higher. And, and frankly, I think these stocks are a little expensive. Now, they're in an uptrend. Still, obviously, 50. Uh, we, we are still uh, 7% above the 50 day moving average, and that gives you some sense for the magnitude of the move that we've seen in tech. So, I think there's going to be a digestion period probably here, very short run. We'll test that 4200 level on the SP. If we bounce up, I think we have more room to run. All right, if we don't. You know, we'll see what happens. It, right. it, it'd take an event to get there. Digest, I think, is the word there. Another word used was bubble. A lot of people think this whole thing's a bubble. Jim, I mean, would you take some money off the table right now, or do you want to just let it ride some more? What, what are you defining as this thing when you say this thing might be a Ma bubble? We, we call, call it, call it Magnificent market? Seven. Okay. I mean, I know Palo Alto's okay. not in that group, but they've certainly been a beneficiary. Okay, so we're talking about tech, not the markets overall. Not the markets. So we're talking tech. Uh, coming off of Jason Snipes' trade, Getting, taking some money off the table, a bit of money off the table when it talks to Palo Alto and then NVIDIA, one of those magnificent yeah. seven stocks we've been talking about. I mean, listen, let's just make this really simple. NVIDIA is up 190 percent in six months. Um, that's really, really appropriate to trim. And Jason's very, very smart. He's got an investment thesis. He sees, sees long-term value in NVIDIA, so he's not selling the whole position. But by definition, if he held it from the beginning of this year, it's gotten pretty darn big in his portfolio. He's doing the prudent thing, both from portfolio management perspective and from where the stock is perspective. As for whether it's a bubble or not, I mean, that's that's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I do still, however, feel that there's plenty of room for a rotation from some money to come out of tech, the Magnificent Seven, whatever you want to call it. The smallest amount coming out of those large cap names going into an unloved sector like financials, materials, energy, whatever, just can easily swamp the uh, supply of shares in those sectors just because of the enormous mismatch of the value. Uh, you know, I think I saw just a random uh, data point today that NVIDIA is now bigger than the entire real estate sector, which by definition means it's bigger than the entire materials sector. We can do this all day right. long. The point being is that the slightest outflows from tech and into the unloved sectors can have an outsized effect. You know, to your point, uh, Bank of America, same, same note, largest inflows in the financials over the last 10 weeks. Um, I want to hit on your point, Rob Seachin. You're talking about rates. Actually, Canaccord out with a note today uh, saying they do not believe a soft landing is a likely outcome, really pointing to two soft landings in the past. 
1966 and 1995, we were just talking about 1995, um, they were driven by a sharp drop in rates that don't exist today and really pointing to the six-month Treasury saying it peaked before the low in the market. We're seeing just the opposite now, six-month Treasury yield up a percent since the October low. So I think you have to pay attention uh, to the hard data versus the, 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 the soft data. Soft data is no doubt weakening, but the hard data has held in there strong. That definitely lends support to the notion that there probably won't be a hard lending, landing unless something breaks. And oftentimes when you move rates to this degree, something can break, right? So uh, the Fed hasn't mattered. As, as I said earlier, not even this week. I mean, we're seeing this decline in the markets after Jay Powell came out decidedly hawkish and really said, hey, we're probably going to have two more hikes. Yeah, well, is the market going to pay attention for any sustainable period of time? They haven't yet. This is a holiday short week. This is a message that has been delivered by this Fed all year long. Can I, can I take what in you're saying, In the market's ignored. Yeah, Jim, jump in. Just, I, th- I think what you may be trying to say, and I'm definitely saying... Evidently not well. No, it's all good. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. See if this helps or not. I, I personally don't care anymore about the definition or the description of a soft versus hard landing. And here's why. You know, that landing's going to happen one way or the other in the next six months, and maybe it extends through the first quarter of this year, of next year, rather. But the market looks forward. Okay, the market is looking forward and it's saying, by the way, it doesn't like these two extra rate hikes, right? That's why I think the market's been weak this last week is that extra rate hike that got added. But the market's also saying, fine, we're looking to 2024. Right now, the projections is 11 to 12 percent earnings per share growth. Do you think that's high? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, first off, the economy and profits have hung in there a lot better than anyone expected. But the reason I don't think it's high, Rob, is because if the Fed's done one way or the other, whether it's one or two more rate hikes and they're done in the next few months, 2024 starts to look pretty bright. Right. And that's why I don't care about the second half of this year. And that's why I don't think if, even, if though, they even pause, though you're squinting your eyes, which, if, which hurts my feelings. <laughs> no, you got go a little ahead, squinty on you, Jim. It, what, it, uh, it, one second, guys. I want yeah. to toss this back over to uh, Jason Snipe. Is rate risk, is that, is that all factored into your decide just to trim a little bit? I just want to go to the CME FedWatch tool. 74% chance of a hike in July, 65% chance of a pause at the next meeting. Yeah, Frank. So, I mean, clearly, you know, we're, we're closer to the end than we are the beginning. You're seeing, you know, obviously a lot of hawkish talk from the Fed this week. Um, you know, a pause last week. You hear from the BOE, the ECB. You know, it's, it's going on across the globe. But we're, we're closer to the end of this cycle. And I think what's encouraging, and I think this is might even what Jimmy was talking about as well, is like you're, you're starting to really see some breath in the market. You're seeing some cyclicals, growth, you know, transports, materials, financials. You know, so this is this is encouraging from the from a market perspective for me. And that's why, like as as I look at growth and tech, that's got the bid at the early part of this year. That's is why you want to cycle into some of these other areas of the market. Yeah, what a spirit of cooperation on the desk today. Jason trying to explain Jim, you trying to explain Seachin. It's just a great thing. It's great seeing this. No, but he gave me the squinty look. Uh, he that's did give you the squint. Oh, that's, not, of, that's not teamwork, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing, I want, I want to go back to this B of A note from Michael Hartnett uh, saying uh, we may see an S&P 500 move 100 to 150 points to the upside versus 300 points to the downside between now and Labor Day. So 
how does that fit in? I, I know, right? <laughs> um, you know why I'm laughing? I'll tell you why I'm laughing. Go ahead. I think it's probably right, but what it doesn't say is what's the path that you get there because I think you're going to see a little wobbliness over the next few weeks. I think the market is, my opinion, you don't have to squint at What's me, wobbliness, right? though? Wobbliness means kind of volatility to the downside as the market continues to digest these extra rate hikes, the impact on the banking system. But here's where, and this is where it gets interesting. You know, getting to the second quarter earnings season, expectations are dirt low. I mean, dirt, like there is no follow through in the estimates for the rest of this year from the first quarter beat. I think there's a lot of room to surprise in second quarter earnings, and that's where you come out of the trough and get to those Labor, Labor Day highs. Um, I just think you're going you're gonna to have a circuitous route to get there. All right. So let's take a direct route right now to our halftime headliner, Charles Schwab, Chief Investment Strategist, Liz Ann Saunders. Liz Ann, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're talking a little recession possibilities. Where do you stand in this camp? Do you believe we're headed towards a soft landing, a hard landing? Are there any signals that you're watching that lead you to your conclusion? Well, we've been saying we're in uh, some version of a rolling recession for more than a year now because of the unique nature of the pandemic and the hits that many of the segments of the economy that boomed coming out of the lockdown phase subsequently went into recession territory, housing, housing related, a lot of consumer oriented goods, manufacturing. We've then just had the offsetting strength on the services side. We're starting to see cracks on the services side, but we're also seeing a lift now in housing. So to me, What's missing in the debate of recession versus soft landing are those nuances, because we've had hard landings in some of those areas. To me, best case scenario is a continued roll through where assuming services gets hit, that you've got some offsetting stabilization. That said, if, you know, gun to my head, recession, no recession in terms of an official call by the NBER, I think yes. And that's the massive decline in the LEI, the inversion of the yield curve, both magnitude and duration, um, lending standards, liquidity drain, falling right. money supply, et cetera. So. so so listen, let me just push back for a second. You're talking about nuance, but here's Jay Powell when he was on Capitol Hill. Given how far we've come, it may make sense to move rates higher, but to do so at a more moderate pace. There wasn't a lot of nuance there. Well, I, he, he, but he continues to say data dependency, and he pushed back rightly so on this notion that two rate hikes, as shown in the dots plot, is not a path. It's not a predetermined path. It just represents what, you know, the the members think at that moment in time. Yes, he said July is a live meeting. Yes, the the CME tool, which you guys looked at before, shows a pretty high likelihood of uh, of, uh, of a move. And at this point, I'd say yes. But you've also got data between now and then, both on the labor market front and the inflation front. You know, maybe one or two more tops. I think Powell is trying to send the message about pricing out rate cuts at least into 2024. And I think subliminally, that's probably the message he's trying to get out. Uh, Liz, it's Jim Labenthal. Um, great comments on the rolling recession. I happen to agree with them, and I certainly take comfort, as I think you alluded to, with the housing market showing some green shoots here. A question for you on this hard landing versus soft landing versus rolling recession. It seems to me that the sine qua non is the labor markets. Um, yep. and, and I wonder what you think about where initial weekly jobless claims are, 264-odd thousand. You know, from a historical perspective, that actually isn't that high. But it certainly has a lot of people talking that the cracks are forming in the labor market and that they could get worse. What's your outlook on the labor market? 
Though the not historically high is a level analysis, not a rate of change. Yes. And the move up off the uh, the low is well beyond the average percent of an increase off a trough in claims at the start of recessions. Um, so I, to me, I don't look at claims in level terms or even things like payrolls in level terms and say no chance of recession because payrolls actually of the last, uh, I don't know, 12 cycles, you've had payrolls growing in many cases by triple digit at the point the recession uh, starts. So I think claims are up enough. The, the one saving grace so far is that continuing claims are still trending down, suggesting that even though there's more people filing, many of those people don't stay on unemployment insurance. They're finding uh, another job. So I, I think we're at the point in the labor market is we, we have to peel at least one layer of the onion back with all of these data points to get a true sense of what's going on. And to me, the biggest tell potentially is the shrinkage in the hours worked. We know there's some labor hoarding going on that may continue, but the hours worked, I think, gets directly to the demand environment, which has weakened. All right, let's talk about the second half outlook when it comes to stocks, Lizanne. You, you say we're probably in a rolling recession right now, but we've seen stocks rally. Then we see uh, Dubrovko Lacos on Closing Bell just yesterday saying he sees a more difficult path for stocks ahead in the second half. Do you see the same thing? And the action we're seeing in the market this week, holiday shortened week, lower volume, is that indicative of what you expect going forward? So, you know, we, we started to see a little bit of a breath widening out, which was um, welcome news, especially given that we ended May with only 15 percent of S&P stocks outperforming the index over the prior 60-day period of time. That was a record low. It, it's often the case that you have concentration that the large cap names dominate performance. But when you have significant underperformance with the rest of the names, that's when it becomes a bit of a problem. So I want to see breadth widening out. However, breadth widening out is a good thing, but it, it's coming in conjunction with a, a market that was overbought technically and where sentiment started to get frothy. It's sort of the opposite of what was happening at the lows in October where the indexes had taken out the prior June low, but breadth under the surface was improving. Yet you didn't have an overbought market, obviously. In fact, you had an oversold market and you had a sentiment quite pessimistic. That was sort of a positive triple whammy and a positive divergence. Now, improving breadth, although it's been sporadic, is in general a good thing. But I think we, we still have to work off the, that, that overbought condition. And I do worry about the sentiment environment, at least in the short term. When you talk about the market broadening out, what should we look at when it comes to that market broadening out? I covered transports. We've seen those outperform in June. We've also seen some movement in small, small caps that it kind of rose up for a minute, then they went back down. Um, both of those are often seen as a leading indicator when it comes to getting out of a recession. Which one would you pay attention to more? Well, I'd say you definitely want to pay attention to uh, to small caps, but also look at equal weight relative to cap weight, not just at the S&P index level, but equal weight relative to cap rate among individual sectors. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the strength of industrials, and it's not just on the surface or driven by one or two large names. You've seen stronger equal weight performance. So I think that's one way to look at any brewing, improving health in the market is to look at that equal weight relative to cap weight, but do it at the sector level, not just the index level. All right. So as we approach the second half of the year, we've been talking about this magnificent seven trade. What's your take on that? Is that a sustainable trade going forward? Of course, we're talking NVIDIA, Alphabet, names like that. 
So I think there's, they're, they're probably going to be subject to uh, profit taking, especially if we start to see some of that convergence where you start to see the average stock perform a bit better. Often when you have an incredibly biased market in terms of a small handful of names, convergence eventually happens. My guess is it's likely to happen in both directions where you start to see better participation down the cap spectrum, but you also see some of those names subjected to uh, to profit taking. So I, I see the convergence in both directions. We are Jason Snipe taking a little profit. Liz Ann Saunders, it is always great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So, Rob nice Seacher, you, you, you were looking at me the whole time when we were talking to Lizanne. What did, you, what did you make of what she had to say? And also the rolling recession comments. I, I saw you write a little something down. So, uh, you know, when I think about it, it's, is it going to be a catch up or is it going to be a catch, a catch down? And on the positive side, there's st- still $4.4 trillion in, in the coffers of investors that's yet to come to work. Do they chase the momentum and it, it, what is working, or do they broaden out thoughtfully and, and try to pick up some of the value underneath? And my bet is the latter. And the reason my bet's the latter is there's no evidence that the world's becoming more stable with Russia, Ukraine, which China, with uh, Iran's pursuit of, uh, of nuclear capabilities, the election and partisan politics. I mean, the litany of things that we have to get through. And by the way, are we seeing the end of a, of a deceleration in inflation metrics? Like, is it going to start to become stubborn here? And is the AI enthusiasm a little overdone? If you look at earnings and the forecast for earnings, they have not come up much. In fact, if you look at tech, it's up hardly anything. So the implications of AI kind of in the intermediate term on profits, right. which is really ultimately what drives stock prices, is, is yet to be seen. In fact, it's yet to be believed by analysts. Uh, you know, there are some questions about the sustainability. Is this a FOMO trade? Is it a bubble? But I want to go back to one of the first things you said. Let's take a look at what's working. You know what's working today? Our chart of the day. CarMax shares up 9%, topping analyst expectations on both earnings and revenue for the first quarter. Shares on pace for their best day in more than three years. And our Carrie Firestone, she owns it and she joins us on the phone. Carrie, what do you make about this move to the upside for CarMax after earnings? Hi, Frank. Well, we think it's fantastic. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for, some sign of improvement. Now, if you looked just at the numbers, you would say, gosh, the used car market continues to be weak. We're down 10% on units, but a quarter ago, we were down 21%. And the stock really started to recover back in March. Uh, we, we've seen a, um, an advancement of 50% since the middle of March. Stock's 84, but it was 155 in November of 2021. Because we're beginning to see that the market is moving. If you remember, I mean, we do, that you couldn't buy a new car during the pandemic. Used car prices went skyrocketing. And since then, so since 2022, there's been less demand for used cars. The prices have come down, and you can start to see some activity on the new car front. So inventory is building for CarMax. They are the only one of their competitors that are really building up inventory. Their online presence is very strong. They added a store, a new store, during the quarter. Where And, and we see optimization of that omni-channel, meaning both you know on the lots and 
online, and we'll see a stabilization. We're beginning to see it in used prices. So they're up 1% year over year, up 4% in the quarter, and that's the type of trend that is going to really continue to help CarMax come back. So the stock's up 9% right now, and you know we're, we're really pleased to, to be seeing that type of recovery enthusiasm from investors. Yeah, obviously a very big day for CarMax. One other thing I want to ask you about the valuation of CarMax, trending at 40 times forward earnings. It's a pretty rich valuation for a company that sells used vehicles. Well, it, you know, the way we look at it, if you adjust for sort of extraordinary items, it's really for February of 24. That's the year we're looking at. It's 23 times that number. Uh, that's a 335 number versus 255 for, um, for, for the current year. Um, and if you look at what they earned during the peak of the pandemic, it was $6.57 a share. So, you know, a really big number is, is possible. Now, we're not expecting that anytime soon. But so this current year is, is a slow year. I guess it's, sorry, uh, February, February 24. I mean, the, these years go by fast. But there's going to be a big increase over the next few years, and so that multiple will come down. But that's true of many of these companies that have had their own recession, and their industry has been so weak for the past year and a half. All right. Carrie Firestone, thanks for being here, having a big day with CarMax. We got some general car parts and, and other ownership here on the desk. Jason Snipe, I want to go to you next. Um, you own AutoZone. How do you feel about this play, seeing this uh, reaction in the stock when we look at CarMax? Yeah, it's really it's really nice to see the price action, you know, that we've seen in CarMax. We we we've decided to kind of play the tangential play like a like a AZO, which is obviously flat for the year, but we really see some upside in the commercial side and commercial segment of their business. Cars are, are aging. You know, the average age of a car on the, on the road now is 12 and a half years, and I think ASIO plays very well into that space. So that's why we own it, and we'll continue to own it going forward. All right, straight ahead, we got more committee moves you're going to want to hear about. One stock Rob Seachin just sold, and the new name that he's now adding to his portfolio. We reveal those trades when Halftime Report returns. Stay with us. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's get to some other committee moves. Rob, you sold American Tower. Yeah, it's slowing top-line growth, uh, you know, customers curtailing spending, 
on uh, 5G networks. So, and at the same time, interest rates are higher and CapEx costs are weighing on their operating cash flow. So that and an extended valuation, we just decided to, to get out of it. Totally or just a piece? Totally. Yeah, one other thing. I know you don't want to talk about it, but you bought some expediters. I know you said it wasn't interesting, but give us a sense. Uh, transports, why get into them right now? Well, uh, managing logistics is obviously incredibly important for every company out there. They're, they're about as good as it gets at doing that. Now, I mean, if you look at these stats, 12% free cash flow margins, 11% free cash flow yielding 30% return on invested capital. You know, in an environment like we're in, we are doing exactly what Liz and talked about, which is betting on the spreading out and trying to find attractive value kind of beneath the surface of tech, which has led everything. Yeah, good day to buy. Expediter's up almost a percent today, right now. All right, time now to get to the headlines with our Savannah Hanel. Savannah, over to you. Hey, Frank. Well, Ukraine's president issued a dire warning about his country's war with Russia. President Volodymyr Zelensky claims Russia may be planning a radiation disaster by attacking the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, which is the largest in Europe. Ukrainian officials raised the possibility in a briefing to international representatives. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is currently underway in the province where the plant is located. Zelensky is calling on other nations to put pressure on Moscow to prevent a possible catastrophe. Honda is recalling nearly 1.2 million vehicles because the rearview camera may not appear on the dashboard screen. The recall covers some Odyssey minivans from 2018 to 2023 and some pilot and passport SUVs. U.S. highway safety regulators say if the camera doesn't work, it could decrease visibility and cause a crash. And Princess Leia's iconic white dress from the 1977 classic Star Wars film A New Hope will go up for auction later this month. The movie relic was thought to be lost for the last 40 years until a movie memorabilia auction house found it in a former crew member's office. The dress is expected to sell for two and a half million dollars, Frank. Now that is a fine. Wow, what a piece yeah. of Hollywood history right there. Absolutely. Our Savannah Hanau, thank you very much. Sure thing. All right, coming up here on Halftime, cashing in on the consumer, a pair of bullish analyst notes on two big names in the space. There's some ownership here on the desk. We break down the details in our calls of the day. But first, a quick message as CNBC celebrates Pride Month. The LGBTQ plus community is not a monolith. There's lots of letters for lots of reasons. But those letters and identities intersect with race and ethnicity and disabilities. And so really focusing on setting an environment where people feel like they belong, where they feel that safety in being themselves. That is what companies can do right now to make sure that people can show up as their best self. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to halftime. It's time now for our calls of the day. Let's start with McDonald's, mentioned by UBS today as a value leader within the quick service restaurant industry. They maintain their buy rating. Rob, you own this one. 
Yeah, it's trading in line with where it's been trading for a long time. We've owned it for a long time. I don't think that PE has moved in five years. This is an example of you pay up for earnings stability, and right now you're not having to pay up to get McDonald's, so I understand the call. All right, there, McDonald's shares down more than a half a percent. Next, we have Home Depot. Wells Fargo saying they are incrementally positive given signs that demand normalization is leveling off. Rob and Jim, you both own it. Jim, I'm going to go over to you. You know, first off, I got to point out how resilient this stock has been. Um, you know, housing went through a severe recession last year, and this stock is pretty much flat uh, over the last year, and it's starting to perk up now. It's perking up now on the green shoots that we're clearly seeing in housing. Uh, home sales are going to drive traffic at, at uh, Home Depot. Employment in the U.S. seems strong, so even outside of new home purchases, there's home renovation going on. It's a very strong stock. I think you've got to respect the price action here. You know, Jim, I actually want to ask you about that. You mentioned we've had a housing recession. People are staying in their houses because a lot of people have rates around 3%. Shouldn't that be good for Home Depot? If you're staying in your house, you're not moving to a bigger or better one. Most people are probably painting and fixing up. Why aren't we seeing better earnings reports from Home Depot in life? Inflation last year was killing the discretionary spend on, on home renovation. It's just really that simple. You know, this, this is a stock that usually trades at a pretty big premium to the market. 18%. It's trading at a 2% premium. It hasn't moved to Jim's point since March. And here's a chance that you can have probably a likely catch-up trade with the strength that we've seen in housing and the fact that people are moving likely to improve their, you know, their existing homes. Yeah, shares Home Depot up fractionally right now. I think one of the big questions is, as people are kind of not stuck in their homes, they're staying in their homes, what's the next trend? Because if we don't have enough uh, housing inventory on the market, what do you do? Are you going to paint and fix up? Are you going to wait for more housing? So a big question there. You're starting to see uh, housing permits really pick up. You know, what you need is interest rate stability, which we may be approaching. Uh, but you saw the housing permits number this week. Uh, that, that's new home supply is going to is going to pick up. Yeah, certainly something to watch. OK, President Biden speaking with India's prime minister and tech CEOs at the White House today. We have our Seema Modi in D.C. She joins us live. Seema, what are you seeing here there? Well, an over one hour long meeting inside the White House, Frank, involving the CEOs of Apple, Google, Microsoft, Advanced Micro Devices and OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, all there to not only share their uh, intentions to expand in India, but also put together solutions on how they can best tackle some of the challenges they're facing as they try to move operations to the country. Now, that includes some of the regulatory hurdles that have created an uphill battle for companies like Google and others. Uh, we know Prime Minister Modi is inside that room as well, among other Indian officials, including the richest and most powerful, uh, widely seen as the most powerful CEO in India, Mukesh Ambani of Reliance. Uh, so clearly there's participation, not just from the private sector here in the U.S., but India's private sector as well, to understand how the two sides can work together. As we see tensions with China remain high, there is clear interest from these two countries and now the corporate sector to work with one another. I'm also told that Sam Altman and Google CEO Sundar Pichai addressed the opportunities with artificial intelligence. Uh, there's interest in not only working together but creating a guardrail, uh, creating guardrails that will allow the two countries to expand and build a roadmap for AI here in the U.S. and India as well. You see both Prime Minister Modi and Biden sitting side by side and I believe the CEOs all had an opportunity to speak uh, to the Prime Minister and the President again about their plans to expand in the country and again what they can do to um, ta tackle some of the 
the difficulties they're facing when it comes to regulation. There is government oversight that's been a big concern in India, a bill that Modi himself may in fact pass that would make it hard for U.S. tech companies to uh, build operations in the country. You know, behind closed doors, I will tell you, many executives say Prime Minister Modi, he talks a talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. He wants foreign investment, but then again, he puts these regulatory hurdles up that make it hard for U.S. companies to do business there. So uh, interesting to see that they're making this meeting happening, make, making this meeting happen here at the White House, looking for a full update very shortly. Frank? Yeah, Seema, we're looking at some video right now of President Biden and the Indian Prime Minister speaking right now. I believe to President Biden's left is the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, as well. Seema Modi, great reporting as always, and uh, staying on top of the action. Our Seema Modi live at the White House. All right, up next, energy stocks under pressure as crude oil falls below $70 a barrel. The sector having its worst week since early May. The committee shares their strategy for how to play the space. Much more halftime back in just two minutes. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. We are tracking the energy trade. Oil is back below 70 bucks a barrel and the energy sector on pace for its worst week since May 5th. Let's just kick this one around. Jason Snipe, I'm going to come over to you. You have some ownership when it comes to oil companies. Really seems like a rate story. Bank of England raised rates. We saw oil decline. A lot of concerns about the U.S. Uh, raising its rates as well. Yeah, so clearly there, there, there's definitely been some softness in crude, and I think some of it is recessionary fears. Some of it is related to the uneven open in China, in my view. I mean, but we're, we're heading into the demand season for crude. You know, there's been a little bit of movement uh, this week in energy companies. I mean, the XLE is up a little over uh, 2.5% this month. Um, you know, but it's still down over 9% year to date. But I, I still like the fundamental tailwinds of earnings. You know, these, these companies have exhibited very strong capital dis discipline through the pandemic and outside of the pandemic. So I think their free cash flow and, and strong balance sheets are still play in uh, to a reason why we're, we're still have conviction in this space. So I still like this trade. And I think, I think energy is fundamentally mispriced here. And I think there will be some upside coming in the near term. Jim, you have a little bit of conviction yourself, recently bought Chenier. What's making you feel positive to buy into energy right now? Is it the broadening of the market? I mean, we're seeing rate hikes in the U.S. over in England. Yeah, Jason just did a very good job of explaining the demand fundamentals that have held back energy prices recently. I'd like to cover the other side, which is the supply side. And here are just the real facts that are out there. Shale oil in the U.S. is showing declining production uh, capacity. So that that's not quite as prolific as we thought it was. We've got cuts at OPEC. We know that Russian oil and natural gas is not as easy to find to the market. Uh, and then, you know, on the demand side, by the way, uh, you still have the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to be filled. What I'm going at with this is between what Jason said and what I'm saying, there is likely to be supply demand deficits for the coming years. And the current low prices, whether it's natural gas or crude oil, are reflecting very temporary effects of what Jason pointed out is going on in China and worries about a recession here in the U.S. that are likely to ebb over the coming months. All right, so B of A with a note saying that the oil bull case is softening, but they did get some top picks in the space. One of them, ConocoPhillips, you own it. Do you have conviction that we're going to see a huge energy rebound at this second so, half of the year? So, you know, we were massively overweight energy, kind of March, April time frame, reduced it to just being slightly overweight in anticipation of a slowdown that, that really never happened in the hard data, right? Today, we're still overweight. We're a little more surgical. We're with some great names. As you know, EOG was one of my year-end stock summit, summit picks. 
But I think this is a great geopolitical hedge to geopolitical risk. I think that's how you have to think about it. It's also a great well, way wait, to play that, the road. Spell it out, Sish. So, what? so let's say something happens in the Middle East. It's yeah. no secret that Iran's pursuing nuclear ambitions, right? Further tensions of the war, war in Russia. These are all things that can impact oil. And obviously, the summer driving season, more travel, okay. the consumers still completely engaged. But this is an area that's cheap. It's also going to be a beneficiary of the rotation into the value trade because energy is a significant part of that. And if you looked in credit, there's no signs of. Uh, there's no signs of significant weakness in the in the fundamentals of these companies, as Jason pointed out, and as uh, as Jim pointed out. Fundamentally, really undersupplied. Yeah, but OPEC cut prices spike, then go back down below 70 bucks a barrel. Saudi Arabia voluntary cut. Gro- growth fears right now are dominating. At some point, they may not. All right, certainly something to watch. All right, coming up next, you got our Mike Santoli. He joins us with his midday word. Halftime will be back right after this. Trade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us hashtag grade my trade. And welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Mike. Kind of a down day in the markets right now. I know you've been looking at the volatility and yes. also the volume. And just the intraday pattern we've seen all week, every day. In fact, every day this week you've made a lower low in the morning in the S&P 500 from the prior day's low. And then there's been this upward grind. So there is still a stubbornness to this bid, even though everyone came into the week saying, ah, we're obviously on, out on a perch here. We should pull back. It looks like we're getting extreme. Mike, one second. We're going to go back down to the White House right now. Asima Modi, we are seeing some of those tech executives leaving their meeting with President Biden. Seema, what are you saying? Okay. Arsima Modi probably trying to get some sound from some of these executives. We're looking right now, uh, seeing a white vehicle, we're looking for some of the different executives that may be leaving. Of course, just a short time ago, we saw Tim Cook there sitting a few seats away from the Indian Prime Minister. Also saw Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella also sitting just to the left of President Biden. We'll continue to watch. We'll go back to Seema if she has some sound with one of those executives or see something else going on down there in D.C. Mike, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, not at all. So I think the interesting part is, do we have a continuation of that pattern? Does it mean that this market can just kind of digest the gains we've had in June by going sideways, churning around, having this rotation? Or, you know, we kind of using up the buying power to stay still for a little while. Uh, Seems to me going into the second half of the year, there's not really a fat pitch either for the Bulls or the Bears necessarily. Coming into the year, you could have said nobody expects a soft landing. Everyone thinks it's going to be a weak first half. I'm going to take the other side of that. That's paid off. At this point, feels like a little more of an even trade. So can we trust some of the downside action we're seeing in the market? We've got to remember, we're kind of sandwiched right now between two holidays. We had Juneteenth on Monday. We have Fourth of July on Tuesday. I'm just looking at the volumes. I'm using the SPY and the triple Qs as a proxy. Uh, SPY down 6% on Tuesday, down 6% on Wednesday, down 15% from its 30-day volume on Thursday. We're absolutely uh, in something of a lull. Of course, we're coming off a Fed meeting last week, too. So you don't have a lot of these sharp catalysts. Seasonally, things do tend to really decelerate here in terms of the volume of action. I was just looking at a a seasonal view of the volatility index, and it's really tracking well this year in terms of how it normally goes. It really just declines into July, then you start to pick up again. That's not necessarily a rock-solid every-year prediction, 
but it shows you that we do have a lot of that uh, jumpiness that's been dissipating from this market. And part of it is just the market itself has been so sturdy and has traction on these de- on these declines, and it's not really causing these big one-day moves in the S&P itself. So uh, the actual experienced volatility in the S&P has been low, therefore the expected volatility continues to be down. All right, Mike Santoli, Senior Markets Commentator, thank you for your midday word. And a quick programming note, don't miss the CNBC documentary, Making of the Meme King, taking an in-depth look at the entrepreneur turned activist investor, Ryan Cohen. That's tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. All right, Grade My Trade's coming up next, right here on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Half. It's time now for Grade My Trade. First one's for Jason. Dylan bought 75 shares of CVS at 67.95. He lacks healthcare exposure, but he believes the stock is on sale. Absolutely. It's been a very frustrating trade this year. I mean, the stock's down 25%. I think this has to do with the Oak Street and Signify deals that, that they completed earlier this year. They lowered the guide in terms of the cost from, the, from these deals, but I think they'll be long-term accretive. So I do, I do like this name in the longer term, but obviously it's been frustrating for now. So I, I like this trade here. All right, next one's up for Rob. Sean sold his Johnson & Johnson position and replaced it with Novartis for a long-term hold. Please grade his trade. I love the timing on the Novartis. We own both. Novartis is a little cheaper. Um, As you recall, last week when we sold Microsoft, we added Novartis as the replacement. So I I have to give him an A because it's the trade that I made. Last one's for Jim. A viewer wants to know if Qualcomm is a value trap. They've been buying at 120 and below. So I love the question. Uh, Value trap is another one of these terms that the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But the reason I don't think it's a value trap is because of the cash and the cash flows that are available at the company. Right now, net debt at the company is about $9 billion. And this year, they'll probably have $10 billion or so of free cash flow. They can easily, they're not going to retire all that debt. They can easily use that free cash flow to start buying back shares. And that's what I expect them to do at relatively cheap prices here. So I don't think it's a value trap when you have this level of cash and cash flows uh, uh, coming from the company. I grade your trade an A. There we go. Some A's out there. Uh, Final trades, they're coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us. Welcome back to half. Let's go back to the White House for those tech executives. They're leaving their meeting with President Biden. Just a moment ago, Apple CEO Tim Cook leaving the White House uh, with that meeting with the Indian prime minister. Also, President Biden, we saw the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella there as well. Sam Altman, the open AI CEO, believed to be there as well. Uh, we're going to toss things over to our Seema. Oh, Hi, Tim. Sorry. We're going to look at some. Hi, Tim. Right Seema here. from CNBC. What did you discuss with Prime Minister Modi? Uh, just about the. Incredible discussion and great state visit, I think. Plans to further expand in the country? Well, you know, we opened two stores there when I was over there, and we'll we'll see. But uh, I think it's a huge opportunity. What about some of the regulatory hurdles and the challenges you're facing there? Uh, Solutions? We'll see. If the Indians are receptive, does Modi seem receptive? Uh, That one I'm not going to comment on, okay? Good seeing you. I think India is uh, important for all companies. 
Great seeing you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you, too. All right, that was Arsima Modi there at the White House just moments ago. Apple CEO Tim Cook saying he sees a big opportunity in India. Remember, Apple opened up its first retail store in India earlier this year. That's going to do it for halftime. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.